If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be world-shatteringly immersive, and here is why. In this episode, we find some answers to how do you create a creative, unique world from scratch. And what should you consider for a world you just want to play some D&D in? And how is Matt Cernick going to impact the gaming world next? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. So world building, it's a topic that can be discussed nearly endlessly. There's about a million takes on what you've got to do in what order. And sometimes it feels like you can just infinitely go down that rabbit hole until you're detailing out the shoe color of the person (laughs) that sweeps the sewers until you, you need to pull back and prioritize, especially if you're planning to run some great games in this world. Okay, that was a little bit over the top you you're focusing on the wrong details if you're detailing out (laughs) shoe color but your point remains that it's incredibly important to not get ahead of yourself when you are a dm because i've done this so many times myself where i've shot myself in the foot having gone way over the deep end and not only does the world never get used but it can actively cause your players to disengage all of that wonderful world building that I've spent hours doing. And of course, then there's the fact that if your game never takes you to those corners of the world that you've detailed out, then was it worth it? Did you enjoy it? Yada, yada. That's almost a different conversation about it. But we are definitely not the experts on this topic. Before you stop listening to the podcast, (laughs) we don't have any answers for you. We invited someone that does know more about the different worlds of D&D than literally anybody and whose work has absolutely influenced our games for the better time after time. We are very excited to have Matt Cernit join us. He's an incredible game designer that if you need a recap, he has worked on, among many other things, 5e products like Waterdeep Dragon Heist, Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, Morningkainen's Tome of Foes, Xanathar's Guide to Everything, Sword Coast Adventures Guide. He's contributed to Magic the Gathering content like Innistrad, Zendikar, and Mirrodin. And loads of other games and adventures like Murder in Baldur's Gate, Betrayal at Baldur's Gate, and the D&D Miniatures game. And he was even the editor-in-chief of Dragon Magazine for a while. We are going to hop to the Strategy Stateroom to our interview with Matt Cernit and get to the good stuff right away. This is the Strategy Stateroom, where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. All right, so yeah, we wanted to talk to you about building that intellectual property and then building a world for your home game. And we wanted to start with that big picture thinking, because that's kind of where we all start as DMs when we, you know, like when we learn to DM 
especially now when you've got all these examples like we were talking about and you think i want to make a huge epic world that's done right right yes i think that that is generally a huge mistake (laughs) as a dm so if you're creating a game to play with your friends uh as a dm i think it's a mistake to try and start and create the kinds of epic worlds that we're familiar with in pop culture, be it Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, or even the ones that we see in the games that are being played online, like that, that feel like they're, they're these hyper-developed, really well-thought-out worlds that are just being played at the table. And, and it feels like there's this whole, you know, people have made books then of, of the game world they've created and, and so on. I think that it's a mistake to think that that happened holistically from the start. So there's two separate processes. There's the kind of thinking that you need to do to create that runaway hit, big, amazing, fantastic world that you feel like you aspire to. And that's a separate process and a different way of going about it than the world that you actually need to play at your table to keep your players coming back again and that makes them really excited to play that game and that you create together. Those are two totally different things. The big world, that epic fantasy or or sci-fi or whatever it might be property is a wholly different animal. And I'd love to talk about how you create that because that's my jam. Like I I just, I I love that process and I love that, that idea. But the other side of it is there's another way of going about creating that awesome game for your table which might get you to that big world eventually, but you start at an entirely different point than the big world. That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) So why don't you kind of take us into the beginning, at least, of that big world, and then we'll, we'll take a step back and look at how to start from the bottom up. Okay. So when you're looking at some of these incredible properties, like, you know, the Marvel Universe or... Harry Potter or what have you. I think what folks have to realize is that there isn't any one right way to do that. Every creator of those places or creators multiple came to them from a different place and arrived at it in a different manner, unique to themselves. So you have things like that, I mean, immensely popular in the time, the Beatrix Potter books, she started out as writing to, I think it was a, a nephew who was sick and she started writing a story and said, I don't know what to write to you. So I'm just gonna write you a story and started. And that's how she started the Beatrix Potter stories. The author of Beatrix Potter became incredibly popular in her lifetime. I mean, she was basically, she was J.K. Rowling of her time. And by her, the time of her death, she had acquired over like, I think like 4,000 acres of farmland that she gifted to Britain as like a a trust that became essentially Britain's first uh, national park system. Like she, she was incredibly successful, but it started out as like letters to a kid. Similarly, um, the Wind in the Willows book started out as a letter to his son, but like that was a successful set of stories that started out an entirely different way. George Lucas wanted to make a Flash Gordon movie and (laughs) he couldn't make Flash Gordon. And so he created Star Wars, right? Like Star Trek was created specifically with 
a ideological goal, a, a utopian ideal that Gene Roddenberry was struggling to present to people. And so you have these various things that, that are created in various different ways, and they become enormously successful, but not through any predictable pattern that you can recreate. You can do some things wrong in creating one of these big worlds. And that is, I would say in general, this is wrong. I will ape this thing that I like and make it again. You know, I'm going to make the new Game of Thrones. I'm going to make the new Harry Potter. You might. Chances are somebody else has already done it and they've gotten to the game first. And so you're going to be like the hundredth person in line to <laughs> create the new whatever. So, you know, you, you can sometimes be that Percy Jackson and get a movie out of it, maybe two, <laughs> you know, get a successful book series, hooray for you, if you follow on the step footsteps of somebody else. But the thing is that J.K. Rowling wasn't the first person to create a story where a special child goes to a magical school and goes on the magical adventures. Like, there are other stories that existed especially British stories where people have that exact same arc of a character who is special goes to this special school of magical people. So Tim Curry was in a movie called The Worst Witch and it was, uh, I think it was mostly a made for TV movie. But The Worst Witch is based on a series of novels. The novels pre-exist Harry Potter, but it's, it's almost identical arc of character of, of this character who's, who doesn't realize she's a witch, goes to a school of witches. And it's an English, like, what? Like, <laughs> beep, why, beep, yeah. you know, but why did that not hit? And this did, it's not predictable. The only thing I can say that is the right way to go is create the world that comes out of you and express something uniquely yourself out of that. I, and you know, people say, write what you know. And I believe that that's true. But I think that the thing that people get wrong about write what you know is that they think that means write your everyday life. That's not the sum of what you know. You know Shakespeare. You know Winnie the Pooh. You know Transformers. You know G.I. Joe. You know all of these things. So incorporate the whole of your some of your experiences. Create that thing that gives you a spark and makes you want to keep on building on it. Build that thing. And then once you have that idea, whatever it might be, outline the elements that you need out of that, that define the genre, define the theme, understand the, the politics of the world that you create, the systems of magic, all those things that you need to tell stories in that world, build that infrastructure so that you can tell comprehensible stories. That is hardly even the beginning of what you need to do. Right. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's barely step one. I get what you're saying, but basically I really like that perspective on that, write what you know, but you're saying collect all that stuff that inspires you and gets you excited and then start applying some storytelling skills to that mass <laughs> of start of massaging and taking little pieces until you've got something that is, well, and like you said, very uniquely yours and also inspiring because it's near and dear to you. So it's got all of these elements. It's got, you know, these pieces that you can then build with. And that's an interesting point too, is that, there's not many major worlds that I can think of that I can separate from their creators. Like they're, they're intrinsically linked. It comes from that person and it's so personally meaningful to them. 
Right. Worlds like that that come from those creators, you can't separate them from, from that. And oh gosh, so there's so many different questions involved. So there are fundamental things that you need when you're building this setting, this world. And, and those are questions of the genre and theme. And we should get into what those things are, politics and so on and so forth that help you foundationally create whatever this setting is. But settings don't sell. Stories and characters sell. And what I mean is nobody loves a world until they love the characters first, at least. Everybody falls in love with characters and story first, and then they love the world. So perhaps the reason why The Worst Witch wasn't as successful as Harry Potter is because maybe The Worst Witch just wasn't as interesting a character to people as Harry Potter is. You've built the world of Harry Potter or Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever, and now you can continue to tell other stories in that world because you've gotten people so enthralled with the world through the story of the characters that now you can tell other stories in that world with other characters. And that's ultimately, I think, what makes a successful setting of that type is that you have characters and a story that illuminate this wider world that you've created. And then people fall in love with that place. And then you can tell even more stories with that place. So how does that work then when you're creating a world for, I mean, the hobby that we're talking about here, which is uh, tabletop role-playing games? How do you create that setting without having those main characters quite yet necessarily? Yeah, the answer is typically it doesn't work. So so the, the settings where it has worked have had those stories and those characters. So if you look at, Dungeons and Dragons overall, it's had dozens of settings. The ones that spring to mind, Dragonlands, Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk to a degree, have those characters. I would argue that Greyhawk kind of doesn't have, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have those characters, but it's still successful to a degree just because it was the first of its kind, right? It's the first setting that people became familiar with. It is arguably the least successful of the well-known D&D settings because it doesn't have the kinds of characters and stories that we're familiar with. So Dritz and Friends, basically their success created the success of the Forgotten Realms. It wasn't until, I mean, the Forgotten Realms box set and there were magazine articles and so on, all supported the Forgotten Realms in, in its infancy, but it wasn't until the Crystal Shard hit and that was a success that the setting of Forgotten Realms itself bloomed into something larger that then more characters got put into and people got, you know, interested in Elminster and, and the, the God's War and like all these other things that are happening. Dragonlance arguably is too successful in creating a setting based upon character and story, because when you look at the wider world of the setting, I'd argue that Dragonlance kind of falls apart. Like it's, it's not... It's not a setting you can tell very many other stories in. Even though they wrote tons of novels in that setting, it didn't catch on as well as The Forgotten Realms because it wasn't as good a home to other stories as Forgotten Realms was. Forgotten Realms was this vast, I won't say blank palette, but because it's so incredibly varied, but it had all these open places to explore with neat, interesting locations. Dragonlance is an incredibly small setting overall. And it basically functioned just to tell one story. And so when you got out of that one story, it kind of fell apart a little bit and didn't work quite as well. So when I talk about 
building a setting, one of these big worlds to support things like theme and the politics and, and all these other things. You want to build that so that it can host other stories, but then you also want to embed within that world that initial story with those characters that you want to tell. And as a DM, if you're trying to do it that way, if you're trying to make that giant world and build those things, then you want some of the NPCs that you create to carry really important dramatic weight in the world that you're building. It's kind of hard to talk about it without dooming it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I definitely get the sense of when we're trying to kick off, you know, the first story, we've come up, like that's the challenge that we're all facing as DMs is that we come up with these concepts and we go, that's a brilliant concept. Uh, This is a neat twist on my world. This is why, this is what makes my world unique. And then we start building uh, governments and, and, and like way more lore than we necessarily need to. But I can clearly see the pit that sits right before you of not creating, like you said, some really compelling NPCs that, you know, you're going to interact with that have some, some, like you said, dramatic weight that all of a sudden the heroes say, actually, yeah, I, I do want to invest in this. I want to help you. And so the, I think the challenge there is that with creating a world that is meant to be mass produced and sold to people, like creating that big IP is a bad fit for what you need at the table. Because what you kind of want to do at the table is come at it from the opposite perspective, come at it from the small scale, the local scale and smaller stakes, because you can as a player relate to those smaller stakes a lot easier because it's, it's a lot more natural to worry about what happens to your neighbor because you've been living next to them. than it is to worry about what's happening to, uh, you know, some spy who works for the government, blah, 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 you know, like all these sort of things that would involve larger concepts that you aren't necessarily connected to yet, especially when you're sitting down at the table at the first time and trying to play a game and suddenly, you know, you've got some character who's the equivalent of Gandalf or Iron Man or something like that coming and talking to you. And like, it's just a bad fit. So, you know, there's ways in which you can create this awesome IP that's uniquely you that maybe at some point you can sell through comic books and, you know, novels and movies. And like, there's, there's a way to try and get there, but I don't think you want to expend as much effort as that in order to get to the table on Tuesday. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, if we're being honest, 99.9% of us that's not our end outcome. We just want to, we're trying to build this rich world. Our hearts and our, are in the right place. And we think that this is the path to do it because we want people to feel as invested as all of these beautiful, rich and diverse worlds that we've seen, like you said, in fiction. We want to give that sense, but it's, yeah, like you said, it's kind of a trap. So we can go back to building a big world if you want to, but it might be a good time to switch to what the other perspective is which is small scale and local. I think that's perfect because as you've been talking the last few minutes, I've been thinking how if you want people to care about any tweaks that you've made to a world, you're going to have to care about their characters so that they then care about the world because they care about their characters. Yeah. 
There's a really brilliant way of thinking about this scale of world creation. It was it was put in this framework by Richard Witters at Wizards of the Coast. He's one of the art directors there. What he talked about was building a world at the scale of your childhood neighborhood. So I had a particularly Norman Rockwell-like childhood. So <laughs> mine might be a little bit different than other people's and certainly different from, you know, kids growing up in the midst of a pandemic where they can't go outside. Um, Fair. But if you think about the world that you lived in as a kid where you knew your street and the people on it, theoretically, maybe you knew a few streets over, then as you got farther out from that, that became driving distance, right? So the spaces between you and the mall or you and the movie theater or you and that restaurant you know or you and your school became this sort of less well-known sort of liminal space that you, you wandered through, but you knew the landmarks that are outside that space. That's the kind of space that you actually want to make your D&D game about. You want to have that really well-developed understanding of the local space that the characters are plunged into and then have interesting exterior spaces to that with space between where they're at to where they need to go that they know about. So they know about their town. They know about a few things outside their town. And then beyond that, they know about, oh, that wizard's tower over there, that, you know, strange mountain in the distance, the mysterious caves that nobody goes into because whenever anyone goes into it, they disappear, right? Like that's the kind of space that you want to build for your characters. And then you can do that like straight out of the box. You can make a plain old vanilla fantasy world. And if you build that space really well and develop the people in the town and give your players a reason to relate to those people in the town, if you build that space, particularly if you build that with your players, you're going to build a space that people want to play in. And if you go the extra step of putting a unique spin on the thing, on the world that you're creating, then you're going to keep players even more invested than they would otherwise be. So I would say that when you're building that sort of little town space, whatever it might be, talk to your players about the world that you want to build and get their investment and buy-in. Because one of the problems about playing any role-playing game is you set up the world that you want to create, you set up the stories you want to create. As a DM, you're, you're engaged and you've got this narrative that you want to build. And then your players come to the table and it's the half-gnome barbarian centaur and the, you know, like, so what, like, how does this, why, huh? And <laughs> you want to avoid that. <laughs> you want to get your players not just invested in creating characters that they build on their own and get excited about by themselves. You want to get them excited about building a world together. Because ultimately, this is a storytelling game where everyone's building the story together. Help get their investment in crafting that environment build that village or world or setting together. And then you as the DM are the master of all the stuff behind the scenes. And so you can surprise them with all kinds of things that they didn't think about. And then because you're so intimately knowledgeable about everything at the small scale, and it didn't take that much effort for you to create, you can then fill in blanks with unique ideas as they come up. You can adapt to what the players do. When the players make some weird conclusion, 
and they decide, oh God, the mayor must be behind it. You can be like, oh yeah, the mayor is behind it, right? <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can make the story um, go in the direction that they need it to go and want it to go. And then you can surprise them. You know, the mayor is behind it, but oh, he's possessed or, you know, something. Like you can do really interesting things with that space, but it's because it's small and manageable enough that you can do that. When the players start to expand their horizons out of that smaller space, right? When they want to go and visit the dungeon or XYZ, then you can fill in the details. But I would advise in general, what you want to do is rely upon convention that people expect rather than building an entire pantheon of deities afresh. You know, if you want to do something unusual that's not in the, in the player's handbook, rely on something that you understand that your players might know. So if you all are familiar with Norse myth, go ahead and do something like Norse myth. Try and rely on some of those conventions so that you're not building everything afresh and everything anew. And then when you do get to spaces where you don't have information, like, okay, well, how did people worship Odin? I don't know. You can make things up and they'll feel fresh to everybody because they're new. You just created them. That's the kind of space that people should be trying to work in because when you start building small like that and then build outward, that's actually how a lot of the successful games are made. So um, a lot of the DMs that we see now online now that are playing these games with stars and stuff like that, they didn't start out with a whole world that they created 300 pages about and then started playing. They started out small. They started out local. That's how you can build with your players as well. What really strikes me about that approach too is from a player's perspective, if I have a DM in front of me who is starting to tell me about all of the the, the political systems within this world and how magic is all of the minutia of, of these systems, from a role-playing perspective, I do not necessarily feel like I can take part in that fiction. It's already been written. It's been created. The world has been crafted. Therefore, I'll just sit back, allow myself to be railroaded, so to speak. And yeah, tell me a story because clearly you've got most of it. Whereas if you are crafting local and saying, okay, yeah, so what what do you see on the horizon? Uh, there's a big mysterious mountain. Cool. Yeah, there's a mysterious mountain. And now they're, they're feeling that much more engaged and they feel like they're a, a participant in this fiction that you're all crafting together. Right. And, and if you know the kinds of characters that people want to play then you can craft that little world that you're creating around them. So if someone's playing a wizard or a sorcerer or something like that, you can make the wizard's tower where their master wizard who teaches them lives, right? And suddenly that's a link that that person has to the world. Like it's literal, you know, that's who I get my spells from, right? You know, that's who taught me. I have, I have emotional investment with this person right here. And so if you craft the story where that person suddenly disappears, and they're, they're, the wizard's tower that used to be home is now just locked with magic. And what happened? We don't know. Like, that's a mystery that person wants to solve. You know, they get into the tower and there's more mysteries inside, right? Like, those, you can craft all of those individual mysteries. Where did the person go? Why? You know, were they kidnapped? Did they leave? Did they leave any messages? Like, those are all really interesting, fun stories that you can craft as a DM that are something that invests your player. And if you know the other people who are playing in your game and the characters that they want to create, whatever story you're telling there can relate to the stories that they have. 
So maybe there's a fighter in the group who is the local militia basically calls them up to defend the village whenever they need defending. Or maybe once a year there's a war or something like that that they have to go fight in or train for or something like that. You can have some story in the wizard's tower that relates to that person. You know, maybe the wizard knows about some evil sorcerer who is fomenting war and that's the reason why the wizard is you know engaged like they're dealing with that war that the fighter character has been called upon to fight in there's stories that you can interrelate everything so that people become uh, more deeply engaged in your game that's brilliant matt certainly changes the way that i'm going to be approaching a few like i'm thinking already about the campaign that i'm in a lot of uh I wish I would have. That's usually the sign for me that there's been a lot of value and a lot of growth is that I've done it in the last 20 minutes. So I certainly appreciate it. Yeah, like that local approach, you're making me think of what you were saying before about those major worlds. We never see any part of those worlds that the characters don't care about and touch personally. Like we're following the world through the character's eyes. We're not getting cutaways to something happening in another region of the world that <laughs> probably will never come up. That's not how stories work. Right. And the stories that do cut away like that successfully, I'm thinking of Westeros and, and Game of Thrones and so on, they do that by creating a crazy pantheon of characters that you care about, right? <laughs> so, so you're not following one story anymore. You're following a dozen stories. And that's difficult, I think, in a role-playing game. So, But what you definitely can do in a role-playing game is illuminate elements of that world-building that you're doing kind of on the fly with your players. So uh, the wizard tower, for example, learning how to do spells and so on. Why do wizards have towers? What, why... What what is what is that even about? Like, <laughs> like, like why why is that even a thing? You know, if you think about that kind of question and come up with an answer, well, then suddenly you've created something that that's a truth about magic in your world. One of the ideas that I was always uh, interested in pursuing for D anD D, but which never really got any ground because it it just it's not necessary for most of what D anD D does is. The idea of the weave and all that kind of stuff is kind of intrinsic to fifth edition now. But the idea that like places that are far away from other living things are where you sort of receive the signal of the weave better. And so that's why wizards live high up in towers, because it's literally like putting yourself on the top of an antenna or really down deep in dungeons where there's nothing but undead, because you're, you're, you're cordoning yourself off from other distractions, which, which is what life is, you know, that there are these other, there are these other moving elements within the weave. And so if you create that little bit of a story to something as simple as like a wizard's tower and you relate that to the player, then suddenly you have pinned into your world a fact and a truth about spellcasting and magic that you can expand upon for other things. Well, what does that mean? Well, okay, if they're sort of these, these places that are distant from other life are stronger in the weave, like, well, maybe that means deserts are stronger than the weave? Should wizard's towers be out in the middle of deserts? That's kind of cool. Like, wow, <laughs> you know, suddenly when the players are traveling across a desert, and they see like some really high mountain and on top of that is, you know, some building. They're like, damn, a wizard lives there, right? Like they, they know that because the world has taught them the, the facts that they've learned about the world that they're playing in have taught them 
that that's where a wizard's gonna go. And he might be a really, or she might be a really powerful wizard because they're way the hell out here in the nowhere with nothing around them and nothing to distract them from discovering the secrets of magic. So you can create those kind, you know, whether it's about undead and what it is to be undead in your world or how gods interact and, you know, with clerics or what it means to be a druid versus a, a ranger or if fighters are different from normal people. There's all kinds of things like that you can make that are just little decisions about uh, how you tell stories in your world that end up relating and becoming larger elements of the fictional world that you create. And pretty soon all of those little decisions, when you're keeping track of them, will create that new universe. And it will be because you and your friends made that. The thing that you will, only you guys could have created was this uniquely architected place. Wow. Yeah. One layer at a time, you've created something totally unique. Even if it came from Forgotten Realms, by the time you've played a campaign doing it that way, you've created your own world. That's cool. Absolutely. I, I don't know if I can take any more <laughs> mind-shifting kind of ideas. So uh, we can go ahead. The main takeaway here is, yeah, I'm, I'm always going to be starting small from, from now on. Craft local. Yeah, craft so local. <laughs> next, we're going to talk to Matt a little bit more about his work and that work that has shaped a lot of what D&D is today some of the other projects that he's working on but first we're going to head to the griffin street market must have provisions and supplies can be found for the right price at the griffin street market hey there don't no no come back come on back come on back i've got something very cool for you no no just focus for a moment what do we got for him jordan got something pretty incredible do you have the travel bug? Then this is gonna be your new best friend. This simple looking handkerchief is not as it seems. Unfold it and you've got a two-way portal to another world. Uh, it's the well of many worlds. I mean, yeah, you threw a little pizzazz on the name, but it if I'm reading that correctly, where do you go? Anywhere in the cosmos that you could imagine. But you don't get to imagine it is the only problem. It's, it is random. Huh. So I could just throw this down and accidentally open up a portal to the elemental plane of fire. That's a possibility, yes. If my vacation destination were to be warm, that is an option for me, sure. <laughs> just try not to open the portal anywhere near flammable items. All right, throw it away. But we do have something else that actually will help you. Maybe instead of going to these other worlds, you just want to describe them a little bit better. With more intensity and feeling, or drama and intrigue. Well, Describe has been helping me a lot with this. I'll second that one, actually. This is a lot safer than a handkerchief of many worlds. Is, like you said, being able to describe them. I have huge reveals all the time that fall flat because I didn't consider putting the party in the scene as well as I could. I didn't really get into the richness. And so uh, the portal to the abyss ends up and it's like, uh, it's dark and kind of spooky and evil and there's some sounds and, and it smells evil. <laughs> it's nasty. Describe will take care of this for you. They've got over 1,500 box text and growing that cover spells, monsters, places, NPCs with tons of flavor, items, and they're always creating new options. There's a lot of great moments that they help illuminate. 
for me. Like, they just threw up things like early morning arrival at the capital city by boat and <laughs> bustling halfling in. Like, even by the titles, you almost get a bit of an idea of what's going on there. Absolutely. And their goals with each of these are to describe the sensory experience, set a narrative tone, and give a prompt for action and roleplay. They're not going overboard. Well, I don't think we can expect to really sell this wonderful market browser on just your words alone. How about an example? How about a sample or a first taste is free? Sure, my dumb words aren't going to sell, but their words might just. This one is called Portal to the Demonic Realm. The soaring semicircle of black stone, veined with magma and etched with runes, seems to emerge from the earth itself. At its heart, a vortex of fire swirls, and within the flames one perceives faint, terrifying faces leering outward. Screams emerge, muffled from the roiling portal. The ground surrounding the portal withers and dries up, scorched and barren. Wow. That is exactly why I do not want to sell that handkerchief to many worlds. That is terrifying. (laughs) Fair, fair. Well, we have a special gift for you, which is the coupon code HOOK that gets you 10% off if you go to describe.com forward slash hook. That's D-S-C-R-Y-B dot com forward slash hook. And and there is where you can find all of Matt Cernet's incredible writing work among many other incredibly talented writers. And that'll do it. Let's get back to Matt at the hero stage. This is the Hero Stage, where fantastic folk have a spotlight turned to them to tell the tales of their adventurous lives. I wanted to start with just, like, I know that you've shared this uh, a lot before. So could you share how you got into the industry? Like, what sparked you? Sure. Uh, When I was, I think about... 10 or 12, somewhere around there. Uh, my friends and I had already been playing D&D since I was about eight years old. And I was at a sleepover at a friend's house. And we realized for the first time that people were paid to make D&D products. Like it was, it was this eureka moment that was like, oh, wait, there are authors and editors who make a living making games. Like, <laughs> you know, it just hadn't occurred to us until that moment. And right as we were having that, that sort of eureka moment, my friend's dad heard us talking about it as, uh, as he walked past the bedroom. And he looked in and looked at my friend and was like, Jake, put that out of your head. You're not going to design games or do any of that nonsense. You're going to grow up, become a doctor. And he walked away. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, my friend got really discouraged. And, you know, I was just sitting there with that weird rebuke reverberating around my head. And I was like, wait a second, why not? What's stopping me from pursuing that as a career path? I don't know, but let's find out. So I went into, you know, through the rest of high school and college and so on, thinking about like how to do this. And, you know, I, I did little things here and there. There was the gold box SSI games. Um, do you remember those at all? I don't, you might get, you guys might be too young. Pool of Radiance and stuff like that. There were little uh, D&D games that you could play on your computer and have a party and run around. And one of them was called Unlimited Adventures. 
And in the Unlimited Adventures game, which was kind of the the end of that era of those types of, of RPGs on the computer, it allowed you to create your own games within the, the system. So you could build your own dungeons, you could create your own characters, populate the dungeons, add dialogue, all that kind of stuff. And so I used Unlimited Adventures to build stuff. There was a little postcard inside the box for entering a contest to build a dungeon and send it into TSR. And I was like, well, sh- I'll, sure, I'll do that. So I built a, a little dungeon and I even built a way to gamble in there somehow. I don't remember how exactly. And sent it into TSR on a floppy disk and I won the contest. So that was like a, a great sort of validation of my desire to do this kind of thing. Now, as far as I know, I might have been the only person who entered the contest. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I won. I, I got to go to Gen Con and I took a buddy of mine. And then I got into college and was still sort of pursuing this idea. But there wasn't any path for me to get there. You know, this is before anyone could get a degree in game design or, you know, game design itself really wasn't something that anybody could do other than as computer programming. And I knew I didn't want to do anything with computer programming. So I figured the best way to approach it might be through editing, because I knew that I could get trained as an editor. And I thought, well, very few people who want to go and work in the RPG industry are going to be somebody who can say in their college degree, I have an editing degree. And so I switched colleges and went to Syracuse University where I got a magazine editing degree. During the course of getting that degree, I interviewed some folks at TSR. Um, When a job came open, I applied and I became a junior editor on Dragon Magazine way back in 2000. So my plan worked, right? Like, Like the path of getting into gaming through editing was kind of how I snuck my foot in the door. A lot of people approach the path in entirely different ways. I know at TSR at one time, there was somebody who was a designer there who was like a rocket technician in the past and stuff like that. So like people came at it from all different directions, but that was my path. And then I proceeded to work my way up ranks in the magazine, eventually switched over to doing D&D design, did that for many years, worked on magic, switched to doing Gleamax when there was sort of a computer game or initiative within the company, and then went back to D&D and magic and so on after that. Uh, and since I've moved on to doing stuff for narrative design for computer games. It was definitely a long process. It was like, a, okay, this is what I want to do and what's my path. And it was a series of validations and dead ends and until I finally figured out the right way in for me. Nowadays, I think there's entirely, totally different ways of getting into the industry. There are many more paths that are far more obvious. <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. <laughs> But I think it's just neat because so many times you see people that are doing what they really want to be doing and they had to get there through some weird means. They just had to figure it out because <laughs> it didn't exist till they were there. I think uh, if you want it, whether it's tabletop gaming or computer gaming industry, the paths to get there are more obvious in that there are degrees that you can get uh, that are going to get you a step closer There are plenty of startup games that you can do and put in basically free effort for in order to build somebody else's game idea 
or you can build your own game. Uh, there are plenty of platforms now where you can build games yourself, be it an RPG or, or that kind of thing. I mean, if you want to kickstart your own game world, you can try and do that, figure out how people did it successfully, do it yourself. There's just a the host of, of ways that you can, can get in at this point. And the, the gatekeeping, if there is such a thing in the industry, is really about um, people who are already in positions of power at organizations. And if you want to, you can just end around, around all of that and make your own stuff and sink or swim on your own merits. I think that's fantastic. I mean, I guess as far as fictional worlds go, though, when, when kind of crafting your own, I'd be kind of curious to ask you, What's been the best one or your favorite near and dear to your heart that you've worked on? And which one would you want to work on out of all of the fictional worlds out there? Um, ah, gosh. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> We're not trying to get you. <laughs> I mean, for the longest time, my favorite world was the Forgotten Realms. And that's because I rode the, the ride from... The crystal shard on right like the the crystal shard opened up that setting to me as a world that i wanted to explore and basically like right after reading the crystal shard i went out and bought the gray box for forgotten realms and learned more about the world and then continued to learn more and more about the world and so i was kind of the in-house expert of DD, but particularly forgotten realms at wizards of the coast for a number of years uh so that would probably be I'd say my favorite setting, um, or at least, you know, that, that has been my favorite setting for many years. Now I'm most interested in the stuff that I'm trying to build for myself. I, you know, I'm, I'm in the midst of the process of trying to build that massive IP world. We talked about it earlier where, you know, you have to kind of do all these big things about theme and politics and and all these types of things about that world i'm in the i'm in the process with a particular idea i have right now and trying to make that thing that is uniquely me we'll see it might work out or it might not i mean that's the thing is you can tilt at that windmill and get get smacked down and have nothing come of it the thing about that is you just try again <laughs> you can create a new fantastic world that you're super thrilled to to play in and just build a new so i'm going to try with this next project that i'm working well i mean it's sort of a back burner project on everything but so how did that get started what made you start creating your own huge ip it's one of those things where the genesis of the idea was a writing prompt from a company that i was trying to get a job at and they basically said you know, write us a little bit of a description of a new science fiction world and write a little bit about a character from that world. And that was, that was something, something along those lines. And I was sitting there like, well, I'm, I'm doing this writing test for this thing. And, and when you're doing writing tests for a job at various places, uh, there's different varieties of how they do writing tests. And you never really know exactly what they're looking for. And it's always really sort of difficult to get your head around it and and kind of give what you think is right for them versus what you want to write and all kinds of different things. But with this one, it was so open-ended and bizarre that I was just like, well, you know, I'm not going to make just any old world 
with laser swords and, and stuff, like anybody can do that. I'll try and just create something that is entirely new um, that I've never seen before. So I generated this idea basically just for the writing test and handed it in. And eventually they closed the job because they COVID and all kinds of other things. And so like it, it didn't ever go anywhere. But I'm sitting there with this idea like, well, wait a second. This is a really good idea. Like <laughs> <laughs> I, did I like it and I've never seen anything like it before. So maybe I should just do that. But it's taking me a long time to sit down and get to it because I have a lot of other writing priorities that I actually get paid for and then other projects that I already started before that and lots of other excuses that I make to procrastinate actually doing that something. So. <laughs> well, you certainly are a busy guy. What else are you working on that you're allowed to talk about? Um, well, uh, there's the game that I can't talk about. There's Describe. Um, there's another project, which is narrative design for a release of a corporate product. Um, it's not a game. Uh, it's weird. It's like Imagineering for Mr. Monopoly. It's very strange, but it's fun. Uh, I'm doing that. I can't talk about that. Um <laughs> <laughs> and and then also I'm working on a screenplay that I'm sort of perpetually banging my head against the wall on. So we'll see. Awesome. But I totally understand that you can't really say too much yet. <laughs> so let's talk quickly about your work with Describe. How do you go about writing such incredible box text? How do you really start to evoke some of those feelings of places and being there and uh, just all the richness that you tend to bring with every one of those descriptions. What you try to do, at least what I try to do, is evoke an impression of whatever it might be, rather than describe the particulars. In part, that's because as a, as a DM, you're going to want to shape some of the particulars yourself. But also, evoking that impression of something inspires ideas that I, as the author of that little bit of fiction or whatever it might be, don't necessarily have, you know, I just, I, I want to give people the sort of the juice to run from. So, yeah, I can see how, what you mean by that specific challenge, because you're capturing a feeling, not a scene. Yeah. The goal isn't actually to describe a scene. <laughs> Maybe the, the writing prompt is, you know, the town drunk, and you could take that in a million different directions. But, you know, there's multiple challenges, like oftentimes you don't want to say, well, it's a male dwarf and he's wearing a red shirt and, you know, none of that stuff's important. What's important is the, is the sense that this individual is recognizable at the moment that you see them as someone who is intoxicated, you know, and someone <laughs> who is perpetually intoxicated. And, and so you need to get to whatever the details are that express that to the viewer. And then it's also fun as writing those prompts to get to some of the internal thoughts and feelings of the viewer and kind of impose them upon the viewer. And so there are certain judgments of character or of the situation, you know, of a scene of a town or something like that that somebody might make as the viewer and you kind of as a writer of that get to impose those thoughts so that then again they kind of whoever reads that sees that through their own view so like it can't be too strong like you can't for example impose such a, like a really judgmental view on the town drunk right for example 
because maybe somebody who is reading that paragraph and or is supposed to be seeing the town drunk for the first time would feel compassionate towards that character. Maybe they would feel judgmental. So you have to kind of figure out that weird nuanced balance and find something, you know, that that inspires people to use that character or that location or whatever it might be. Well, and it's so nuanced and you can absolutely see the the craftsmanship that goes into each one of them. The work has been incredible. And Jordan and I really got a excited that we we're like, Matt Cern is going to be on the podcast. He's, he's going to come and join us. And how excited we were to just have the opportunity to talk to you. But then in addition, like when Describe approached us, we were like, this is it. This is the <laughs> stuff that just changes because like what you're describing, you know, how to how to evoke that feeling without all of these judgments, without all of that that's so difficult to do as a DM without the time to really sit down. And, you know, that's when you see really good DMs have like a little flip book full of, you know, their own box text that they've created because they've spent probably, you know, hours trying to craft all of that. So it's so necessary and it's so cool that you're working on that. Yeah. I think that one of the, the challenges that the DMs face at this point is that they have so many great examples of really awesome DMing. (laughs) Like when I was a kid growing up, you know, I had my DM who was my friend and we would DM for each other. And, you know, those were our examples. That's, that's how we played the game. But now you can watch, you know, people who make their livelihoods out of, you know, gaming online and DMing online. And it's like, oh, wow. Like, It's great because it showed many people how to play the game. Because that's the other thing is that role-playing games as a hobby has always been driven by essentially word of mouth. Uh, it's very hard to crack open a 300-page rule book and then find your way inside this game and then get a few friends of also excited to play this game that you have to read 300 pages to understand. But when you see somebody playing it online, it's like, oh, I get it, right? This is, this is playing pretend with rules. And it's this really complex, evocative co-storytelling that everybody does together at, at one place. Like it's, it's the kind of experience that you really can't get from anything else. And when people can see that, that's when they have that aha moment. And so that's why fifth edition has really kind of, you know, run away with things. And then all these other role-playing games have come along and kind of followed along with it because there's been this just flourishing of means by which people can see, you know, YouTube and Twitch and all this other stuff, ways in which people play role-playing games. So it's really fantastic. It certainly helps you kind of like skip all of that figuring it out stage. But that is an interesting point about the difference between you and your buddy sitting there and you're developing your own very individual styles because it's based on nothing but what you can make of it. Right. And, and so, so you, you have no pressure of like, oh, I need to make this really awesome or like this other thing that I've seen because you've all just been, you know, sitting around in your basements or you know, your friend's room or whatever. <laughs> and I mean, I played and, and I ran, you know, as a kid growing up, some really terrible games, <laughs> like in retrospect, really, really bad experiences. But, you know, it's because we didn't have better examples and it was still fun, you know, whatever. It was great. But yeah. Yeah. You're only as good as the amount of sleep that you got the night before or, or, right. you know, how, uh, yeah, how inspired you're feeling in that moment. I mean, it's kind of the cool thing about role-playing games is that 
especially when when they're not being played online and and on live streams and things like that is that it's an experience that only those four people or those five or six people will have and it will forever be one of those you had to be their stories no it was really good he jumped off the <laughs> and that's only for the five or six of you right you know, it's, it's so neat like that um yeah. thank you so much matt this has been a a real treat and a real honor to have you on the show where can people find you? Oh, uh, well, uh, I am at Cerna on Twitter, where I post various rants about um, politics and economics, mostly. But <laughs> every now and then, occasionally, it's about other stuff that's not related to those things. And it's more <laughs> sort of creative stuff about, you know, fun things. I'm down for all of it. Thank you to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects, as always, in this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. You can join the awesome community of players and DMs by joining the Discord. And Matt, if you would like to join us on our outro. Thanks, thanks for listening, listening and play, play great, great games. games. Play great games. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect.